So I keep coming back to one thing, though, that I want to talk about. In all versions, the husband fucking sucks. Fuck the husband. Like, I, yeah. I hate the husband. He's terrible. Yeah. In every version of the story, his attitude is the worst. I, I don't know. I detest him. It changes throughout, but he's always bad. So uh, I'm on team the husband fucking sucks in, in this. Like, of course the bandit sucks, but the husband also fucking sucks. I'm on team woodcutter. I'm on team... <laughs> The guy who like kind of did like almost nothing wrong. Although, although maybe he stole something or concealed something. Welcome, friends, to episode 259 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week, we discuss Ryunosuke Akutagawa's 1922 short story, In a Grove, and Akira Kurosawa's 1950 film, Rashomon. Here we are, James, one of the directors that I feel like you've long been talking about uh, with me and referencing and other, other things we've covered. Uh, one of the big ones... I think I've only seen Yojimbo by him um, and none of the others, to my knowledge. Um, but I, I loved getting to finally crack into one of his films and, and analyze it. It's been really fun. Yeah, I think like a lot of people who, who get into film, I mean, even just from the Star Wars angle, when you start to look at influences, one of the early ones that I realized was Hidden Fortress was a huge influence for George Lucas to make Star Wars. So I went to that first and... Like a lot of people that are super into film, I think Kurosawa was the first time I was able to analyze really artful films that are that are outside of the commercial successful films that you hear about all the time. This is like these are the first ones that I really started to dig into that there was more to them. There's symbolism and there's like expert camera techniques and, and experimentation that's happening and just the, the era that a lot of the specifically Kurosawa and then other filmmakers of the time sort of defined and and would go on to influence all the people that were making movies when I was a kid and then even today. It's so fun to to get a chance to analyze this film again. Rashomon is is possibly the most influential film ever. Really? Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily... I was going to necessarily... ask you where this lines up in his filmography as far as like most famous, because he has a one called like Seven Samurai, I feel like I've heard yeah. a lot about. Yeah, if you've ever seen like a Western team-up movie, Seven Samurai influenced yeah. that. And What about Yojimbo? That's the one I saw in school. Yeah. Yojimbo, uh, what's the other one? Sanjiro, that were like sort of together, Yojimbo and Sanjiro. Okay. I think a lot of people know him as a samurai film director, but right. he's not just that. Yeah, and this kind of is, I guess, but it really doesn't feel like one I don't. I wouldn't define this as a samurai film. Yeah, there's like a samurai in it, I guess. I assume that, I mean, it seems like that's what the guy is. According to the short story, that's what he is. And I think it's even mentioned in the movie, if I'm remembering correctly. This genre, I think, is called Jidegeki, which is like a... Um, a specific period era of the Edo period in Japanese history that had your sort of samurai and and some of the stuff that was going on with Japan at the time. So I would I think it's classified as more of a film like that rather than samurai. Samurai films you'll know because there's people cutting people in half and there's blood flying everywhere. Like, <laughs> they're they're very much like the the precursor to the Western with the showdowns and everything like that. Sure. Yeah, and this doesn't really fit that mold at all. And I was kind of surprised at how much it doesn't. Yeah, and this film defines I think. A few things for Kurosawa is that his his love of experimentation 
and uh, this is him early in his career and the way that he is playful with the camera and and I think a lot of people we I've talked to you how many times about the French new wave of cinema mm-hmm. he, a lot of people point to Rashomon as the first because it hit at such at 1950 mm-hmm. it hit it had worldwide appeal and it really opened up the world to Japanese film and in so doing it also just like introduced the world to a lot of these groundbreaking sort of uh, norm breaking uh, techniques that he's employing and and the use of like a non-linear narrative that we get here. Rashomon is seen by many as the start of the French new wave and just the new wave of cinema in general. Like I said, I I don't think it's controversial to say it's possibly the most influential film ever made. Wow. Well, no pressure. Um, (laughs) um, We got to start with uh, the author, which we'll get to and we'll talk about the short story. Uh, but before we get into any of it, I wanted to give a couple of content warnings. I know this is a very old story, but it deals with very dicey subject matter. At the heart of the story in both versions, there is a sexual assault, and it's talked about and revisited from multiple angles, and um, there's a lot of like fucked up stuff that comes out around that, including murder, suicide, like honor stuff that is very dated and can be very upsetting to people i think some of the attitudes associated with this sexual assault um just want to put it out there people can decide for themselves if they want to get into it um the other warning i'm going to put out is very different but uh it's that i'm not very good at pronouncing japanese names um i did i feel like i am trying i've looked up pronunciations for a lot of the big names but i as we're going through i might encounter some stumble through them um i apologize for that i you know I wish I was better about pronouncing, uh, you know, names in all languages. Uh, but just be aware that, you know, white guy mispronouncing a Japanese name is probably going to happen in this episode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, I, like I said, I'm, I am trying. I'm not, it's not like I'm just going in cold, and but um, I just know I'll mess it up. You did your due diligence. It's just about actually having your mouth form the sounds. Can yeah, be difficult that's where times. I struggle for sure. Okay, so. Let's talk about the short story before we get into the film, because I know there's going to be a ton about the film. Um, Just in general, what were your thoughts? Because you've seen the film, right? So you're going into the short story knowing what it was going on, whereas I had a very different experience. I read the short story before I saw the the famous film, so I might be like one of the few people who's done that these days. Um, But yeah, what did you think of the short story? I liked it. You know, I saw a lot of the structure of what Kurosawa took in and turned into this film. And I want to talk about the the short story on its own, but I have to talk about the fact that like Kurosawa took this story and then sort of molded it into, for some of the symbolism and stuff that was going on, molded it into his own experience in ways and like the, the feelings of Japan at the time and things that were going on. So it's really interesting to see a story from, I think, 1922. 1922, yep. To be sort of like retrofitted and changed and things added to fit kind of what he was going for. Yeah, 28 years later. So this this short story is 100 years old, over just over 100 years You're old. You're right, over 100 years old. I, th- I had a great time with it. The idea of the structure of these like testimonials, basically. No, there's no framing device in the short story, which I think is really bold, right? It's to, right. To- so when you mean framing device, you mean the, the stuff that happens at the temple, essentially, or is right. it a temple in the movie? At the gate. The stuff that happens there is not in the short story. But other than that, a lot of it is very similar. So we're actually not going to like do a scene by scene breakdown of the short story because a lot of it's, I think we can talk about as it occurs in the film. Um, But yeah, I will just say like there is some framing in that it's all accounts given by different characters to some sort of like police commissioner 
and um, it's given as like a direct address to the police commissioner and the police commissioner never speaks. And I was amazed at how much of that made it into the movie. Like the, the like direct, like talking to the camera, we're not seeing who they're talking to kind of thing. And it seems like they're maybe talking to the police, but it's not even super clear. I think in the movie, cause I was amazed in two ways, right? Like, cause I didn't know this is what the movie was going to be. So I was like, Oh, this is a cool, like it feels very modern style. And then when I got to the film to see that that was actually used by Akira Kurosawa in the movie, I thought was pretty cool. It's like, you know, he owes a lot to the short story, I think. Definitely. And even specific lines that are that are taken straight out of the short story in a way that I think and, and we'll talk about Kurosawa more, but he tended to adapt a lot. So this is okay. a, a master filmmaker that we can return to many times because of the fact that he's adapting a lot of his work. But the way that I think smart adaptation knows when to deviate and when to lean into the subject source material that you have. Uh, I, I thought he did a great job here and seeing like the specifics of what made the story tick uh, and, and holding on to those. I, I did think it was, you know, because I'm coming from the, the movie reading this short story, I thought there were a lot of different perspectives. Like I think there was maybe two or three more. more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a little, it's a little more unwieldy uh, to me, but I think Part of that also comes from the fact that it is just the testimonials. We don't get anything outside of the testimonials. So it's almost given to us as this, as if we're in the court and with no uh, you know, context. We're just boop, boop, boop. These are the things you get. But in the way that he was able to pack so much subtext in this short story of like the same kinds of things that, that Kurosawa was trying to get at with truth and, and personal uh, you know, ego or or like want to be accepted and, and so shown in a better light. All of these characters kind of change the story to, to make themselves seem a little better than they should have maybe. Or Yeah, a lot better, honestly. But the, the thing is, like, we don't know what the actual truth is. And that's something that I think we'll, we'll keep returning to. At least that's my take on it, is that the truth is subjective. All the people who participated in it are telling a version of the story that seems to make their choices seem a lot more reasonable and it makes the choices of everybody else a lot worse. And that happens in every perspective. Now they're probably lying is my, you know, read on it. It's not like it's just that they're misremembering. My assumption is that they're deliberately skewing the story, but they could be some misremembering going on. That's what I was going to say. The idea of memory how it can change in our mind and be so real to us. Well, and perspective, right? Like if you look at a look and you think that that look is full of judgment, but then maybe the person who was also there remembers that moment and they don't feel like they were being judgmental. I'm not saying that's exactly what happens here, but like that could be an example of like your perception of it skews your retelling of it in a way. Or And just as time goes on, because we're so selfish i think by nature we we it's sort of the the whole situation revolves around us and our own perspective of it so you do kind of embellish things and that's the funny part is that i would argue that it's not it's almost to the line of i don't know these are direct lies but yeah. you could say that there's a it can't all be true there are some details though that are more embellishments than right out full out lies which is true to life i think in sure. almost all situations you you're gonna get some sort of biased look at at each you know scenario there's like this witness phenomenon that gets talked a lot about in like true crime and stuff and and um in court cases where you have multiple witnesses see the same event happen and will swear on details that contradict each other 
because people just remember things differently, you know, and it'll be stuff that seems like it's obvious, like what color shirt the person was wearing. Like they should be able to agree on that, but that sometimes they can't. Um, what color the car was or what, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. Like uh, It's also like hyper emotional situations where you might not be thinking completely straight as these things are happening. And then also distance from the moment. Yeah. It's very traumatic. Right. And this was a very traumatic event, clearly. Yeah. And how long it has been since the event can sometimes your, your mind can get a little foggy about things. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I have a little more thoughts on the short story, but I think we should, we should talk about the author first. Um, and then, and then we can get through the short story and move on to the film, which I know we have a lot of thoughts about. So, Ryunosuke Akutagawa was born in 1892 and is regarded as the father of the Japanese short story. And Japan's premier literary award, the Akutagawa Prize, is named after him. He was born in Tokyo and was the eldest son in a family that owned a milk production business. He began writing after entering the Tokyo Imperial University in 1913, where he studied English literature. In 1914, Akutagawa and his former high school friends revived a literary magazine, which translates to New Currents of Thought, which published translations of William Butler Yeats and Anatole France, uh, along with their own works. So he's publishing this magazine uh, that has like world translations in it, but then also their own short stories. He befriended a bunch of uh, authors in his high school that actually went on to become fairly famous. The year following launching the new magazine, he would publish his short story, Rashomon, which uh, is actually not the same story that we're talking about here. It's a different story. But the title and like some of maybe the framing device was borrowed from that. And it's interesting that it became the name of the film later. Yeah, does it have which, to do with the gate? Because that's the... N- yeah, maybe it does. I'm not sure. I, okay. I focus most of my research on In a Grove, which is the sure. short story that is actually adapted into the film but i thought it was interesting so he publishes that in 1915 um in early 1916 he would publish a short story that translates to the nose which was actually the one that gave him his first taste of fame so like this is the first one that really kind of took off in 1921 akutagawa would interrupt his writing career to spend four months in china as a reporter for one of japan's national newspapers during the trip akutagawa visited several cities in the southeastern china The trip was so stressful, and he suffered from various illnesses from which his health would never recover. Shortly after his return, he published In a Grove in 1922. This would would move into the final phase of Akutagawa's literary career, which was marked by his deteriorating physical and mental health. Much of his work during this period is distinctly autobiographical, some even taking directly from his diaries. Akutagawa had a highly publicized dispute with the author Tanizaki over the importance of structure versus lyricism in a story. Akutagawa argued that structure, how the story was told, was more important than the content or plot of the story, whereas Tanizaki argued the opposite. So you can kind of see that reflected, and we talked about like how the structure was so interesting in his writing. Apparently that was like a big deal for him. Towards the end of his life, Akutagawa began suffering from visual hallucinations and anxiety over the fear that he had inherited his mother's mental disorder. I couldn't find what exactly it was. I did just see it mentioned that his mother had a mental disorder. Unclear what it is. In 1927, he survived a suicide attempt together with a friend of his wife. He later died by suicide by overdose. In his will, he wrote that he felt a vague insecurity about the future. He was 35 years old. That was in 1927, so 
incredibly young. Uh, he was the author of over 150 short stories during his brief life, a number of which have been adapted into multiple art forms. So uh, this is the one thing I have. I'm sure you have more. Akira Kurosawa's film Rashomon in 1950 is in fact based primarily on another of his short stories in a grove. Only the film's title and some of the material for the frame scenes, such as the theft of a kimono and the discussion of the moral ambiguity of thieving, uh, survive and was borrowed by Rashomon. The story's title, In a Grove, has become an idiom in Japan used to signify a situation where due to different views or statements of people involved, the truth remains hidden. Wow, and that's interesting because Rashomon has entered our zeitgeist and our lexicon of words because it means the same thing as what you just said about In a Grove. And like, I was well, maybe it's Well, maybe it's referring to that because it just says the story's title and I'm unclear okay. whether or not this is referring to the title In a Grove or the title Rashomon. I guess I assumed... It was in a grove, but maybe, maybe yeah. not. Maybe it's Rashomon. Because obviously the Rashomon effect has gone on to mean a lot of things in film. To Many people have emulated this sort of structure in the way that you're rehashing the same story many different ways. But I also read in like the world of law that like there, there's actually like Rashomon is like a statement for that similar kind of situation where if you have different witnesses on the stand recounting the same events differently, it's, it's now known as like a Rashomon moment or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. For something to go beyond its initial art and be known as something that you can like reference in a, in any setting like that is I don't know really really powerful and like you said if it whether it's in a grove or Rashomon it, the fact that it means that kind of, same kind of thing in in Japan is is wild because it's you know that just goes to show how powerful these stories can be and how how much of a lasting impact and legacy this kind of stuff can have absolutely I just wanted to give Akutagawa his due in and. Because we've talked about all these other figures, right, that died young and yet left these lasting marks on literature. Um, and I think he's he's one of them. I think he should be right there uh, with them because the guy died when he was 35. And yet he is known as this, like, father of modern Japanese short stories, right? Like, the, he, the biggest literature prize is named after him. He's a big deal. And the fact that he was in the same kind of way that Kurosawa does with film, he was experimenting with story structure and things like that, that you, that you can see as sort of modern literary works would probably continue to, I don't know that he was necessarily the first, maybe one of the first in Japan, but you know, that, that is still kind of how you see very literary works, right? Like still experimenting, still looking for, for things like this, like angles to take and, and to tell a story in a unique way. You know, it's it's really cool that he's remembered in that way. I had no idea that the story came from somebody so prolific as well. Yeah, uh, and renowned. All right, so before we move into the movie, any final thoughts you have about the short story? And also, like, I want to know your perspective, um, if it changed any of your perspective on the movie, seeing the source material, does it, like, does it, does it add anything to it for you? I think maybe a little bit. It's it's kind of a sparse story because we're getting those those viewpoints. But I do think that Kurosawa's film has a lot of like quiet moments where you're left to kind of just understand what's happening. And I do think that having those written out, to knowing exactly what like was happening in the scenes and who was feeling which way, rather than interpreting it, uh, getting it sort of told to us in, in a in a way, rather than interpreting performances. I mean, uh, so yeah, I, I liked it for that fact i think if you if you like the film it's a very short read and it's really interesting to to kind of compare and contrast and think about what kurosawa was working off of and how he expanded and, and things that were changed so 
That would be my recommendation. That's my main thing because, um, yeah, I mean, like, I love the film. So, like, and that's the more famous version, I think. But it's cool to look at the story and imagine the mindset of a filmmaker coming in and deciding what to put on screen, how to show it, and what to add to it to make it, to flesh it out. Because it's fairly short and it feels like it kind of needs a little more to work. Um, and how he brought in these framing devices and intro and outro that that uh, contextualize the story in a little bit in a way where the short story almost, it just does the thing, right? Like it gives you multiple takes on an event and then it leaves you to decide and there's no characters debating like what it all means right and the nature of truth and like stuff like that none of that's present so that all has to occur outside of the story i think you could read the story where the further you go along through it the closer you're getting to the truth and then at the end when a fairly supernatural event occurs and we get the story of the murdered man through a medium that this must be the closest to the truth we're going to get I don't know if that's actually the correct read of the story, but I think it's an understandable read, whereas I think the film maybe goes further away from that as being accurate. Yeah, it's funny how we we just had a couple of conversations the last few weeks about ambiguity in storytelling. And, and you know, sometimes that's for some people love it. Some people really bounce off of that. But we we tend to really like that. And this this short story in the film, in turn, are extremely ambiguous and and they leave it all up to yeah. the audience. It's kind of funny to imagine a person being like, "But what really happened?" Like I don't know. It's like I get it, but also like that's kind of the point. Of this that's story. Com- that's entirely <laughs> the point of this story. Yeah, there's yeah. the subjectivity of it all. It's interesting. I I want to. I mean, this this does open to a larger debate about storytelling, but I like to use overlapping timelines a little bit in some of the stories I write. Um, and in my novel I'm querying right now, I have a, you know a few scenes that are seen from multiple perspectives. But when I do it, I present to you the sort of sensory lived experience of each character as they saw it in the moment. What this movie is doing is different than that. This movie is giving us a story told through memory and through... Um, Unreliable narrators. Honestly, lies, right? Like, it's like unreliable narrators giving their version of events mm-hmm. with a skew of it, whereas I'm giving more of like a direct feed into their mind. Um, and that g- produces a very different result. And they're really not one and the same, even though they're approaching storytelling in, in, in some similar ways. So I just thought it was interesting that it's like, this is a very specific kind of thing that is that is getting into unreliable memory and unreliable people who just were, are going to cast themselves as sort of the heroes of their own memories in some ways. Did you I was going to ask you about this, too, like your history with Rashomon and the idea of it. Were you familiar with this idea that like it's different perspectives that no, I had no idea that that's what this was about. But like in 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 having read it and seen it now, you you totally see it everywhere, right? Like this. Well, sure. I mean, I think you can see this in a lot of um, crime like stories where they're we're talking about something that occurred. You will get multiple characters describing it in a different way and it contradicts. And then I would say most movies tend to settle on a a real version. And it's interesting to me that this doesn't. Um, And and I feel like that's more rare. 
that's why it's so bold, right? And that I can see that someone seeing that and saying like, "Oh, you don't have to answer everything." And 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 this this kicking off, like I said, that new wave of cinema and that that new way of storytelling. And I'm not saying it was the first time it was done necessarily in print and in and novel format or short story format, but I think in film it was a it was a huge moment as as like something you can point to and say like that is the thing that turned over a new leaf for like all filmmaking. And it's funny too how how rules shift for me personally when reading something because when I read about a medium giving the direct account of the husband's slash samurai uh, his account I was like oh yeah I'm going to believe this but then I was thinking about how like in real life this would be the least reliable of any of the things because like this person would probably be making it up <laughs> um, so because I'm not someone who actually believes in mediums being able to do something like this but in the context of a literature they tend to be truthful, right? Right. So uh, we talked about some of the changes that Kurosawa made, and I just wanted to note, like, the way that this is, like, a f- it's a very faithful adaptation of the work, but I think he does it to different ends and for different means. It's, so it's almost like the most, unlike the source material, even though it's the most it's the most unfaithful, faithful adaptation I think we've seen up to this point. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to be curious to, to hear you kind of break that down. Um, Before we really get into the movie, I just want to give one call to action here for people. If you uh, would like some merch with some cool alternate art, uh, we have t-shirts, mugs, uh, all kinds of stuff like that uh, available on our Patreon, and we could really use uh, a couple of people coming in and getting some merch right now. That would be really awesome. Uh, we, we are uh, at a point where we're having to start to pay for some stuff out of pocket that we really wouldn't like to, so um, it would be much appreciated. Now's a great time to get on there. It takes You have to be at that level for three months, but then Patreon fills it, and it gets shipped right to your, right to your house. So um, we'd love to have your support over there on Patreon. All right, so jumping into it, let's start with the filmmaker, Kira Kurosawa. Kurosawa was a Japanese filmmaker and painter who directed 30 films in a career spanning over five decades. He's widely regarded as one of the most important and influential filmmakers in the history of cinema. Kurosawa displayed a bold, dynamic style strongly influenced by Western cinema, yet distinct from it. He was involved with all aspects of film production. He entered the Japanese film industry in 1936, following a brief stint as a painter. After years of working on numerous films as an assistant director and script writer, he made his debut as a director during World War II with the popular action film Sanshiro Sugata. After the war, the critically acclaimed Drunken Angel, in which Kurosawa cast the then little-known actor Toshiro Mifune in a starring role, cemented the director's reputation as one of the most important young filmmakers in Japan. The two men would go on to collaborate on another 15 films. Rashomon, which premiered in Tokyo, became the surprise winner of the Golden Lion at the 1951 Venice Film Festival. The commercial and critical success of that film opened up Western films market for the first time to the products of the Japanese film industry, which in turn led to international recognition for other Japanese filmmakers. Kurosawa directed approximately one film per year through the 1950s and early 1960s, including a number of highly regarded films that were also often adapted, Um, which, you know, I I can't wait to revisit Kurosawa. I don't think there's any reason why we wouldn't. Yeah. I wanted to note a few uh, of the adaptations or remakes that have come out. So there was a remake that was made 
I think like 12 years after this film and it, it wasn't it wasn't super well regarded. I think it was a Japanese remake. Um, and just a couple of notable things that I pulled from the list that I thought I would tell you because they are directly related to things that I'm sure that you have seen or, or we both have seen. Okay. So Star Trek The Next Generation in 1990, there's an episode called A Matter of Perspective. Uh, and it has a similar plot line to Rashomon, this time told from the view of Commander Riker, the assistant of a murdered respected scientist and the scientist's widow. So okay, right there. I'm sure that you watched yeah. that. Probably. I don't remember it, but I mean, when I was a kid, I probably saw it. Yeah. Courage Under Fire, 1996 war film. Um, it's, it uses the same Sounds format. Fraser has an episode in, in 1997. <laughs> okay. Farscape in the second season has an episode called The Ugly Truth which aired in the year 2000. There's a film, and I don't know that you've seen this one, but I love this film. It's called The Handmaiden. It's a 2016 Korean erotic psychological thriller. It's told through three parts in multiple points of view. And uh, The Last Duel came out in 2021. Ridley Scott directed oh, yeah. historical epic uh, of a rape and duel through multiple points of view. So very much a reference to Rashomon, I would say. Um, okay. And then a King of the Hill episode in 1999. <laughs> a firefighting we will go so yeah just yeah. a few that i thought i would note somebody in our uh our discord and i should have written down who it was but uh posted like a a, a link to a uh simpsons reference oh yeah too. yeah excellent yeah great gag i think i think marge says something along the lines of um you'll love the japanese films you you really like rashomon and then and then homer says that's not how i remembered it <laughs> that's not how i remember it or something like that so just just you know really fun and the simpsons are, are great about film references and that kind of thing they have they have a ton of that right what kurosawa was approached by his assistants to explain this script because they were baffled by it no one could f kind of figure it out uh and he replied Human beings are unable to be honest with themselves about themselves. They cannot talk about themselves without embellishing. The script portrays such human beings, the kind who cannot survive without lies to make them feel they are better people than they really are. So they were all, you know, baffled because they, they were like, who's at fault? Like, we have to solve the mystery and tell everybody. And right. this was his response to that, which yeah. I think is fitting. Like, you got to keep that mystery alive. And, and I don't know that there even really is a mystery. I think it's just it's all a blend of these different perspectives that we get. You have to be someone who's willing to stick to your guns and say, like, no, the ambiguity the questions you're having is the point and that's what i want <laughs> because you're going to get pressure to be like well what's the real what's the real answer like you're going to get pressure yeah. for that this is just going to start to get into some of the development of the film and, and some other things i read he has an autobiography i recommend people go uh refer to a lot of the criterion collection uh supplemental materials that exist out there you can find it on youtube or on their page um, just, I mean, like I said, if someone writes an autobiography, there's no way I can talk about all of that in an hour and influences in the ways that he, you know, he saw his own legacy. But I did, did see something about this film where he talked about, um, he was struck by the honesty of emotion in silent films where dialogue could not carry the weight and actors use their faces, eyes, and gestures to express emotion. So I was going to ask you as I, and I know that you, some of these older films, you've seen some, but early on in the podcast, you would talk about bouncing off of some of them. They were a little difficult, especially like silent movies. And you know, I think that you can see in certain scenes throughout this movie, he's definitely channeling that silent movie era where he's kind of just letting the film progress and letting the actors tell the story through their actions and through their facial expressions. Did you pick up on all, a lot of that? And did you feel like there was more to it this time? Or, or so, so where were you with that kind of thing? 
with just like the age of the film. What did you think of the fact that rather than getting a lot of exposition and things like that, we were left to sit with the film? Yeah, I mean, I, that actually felt modern to me. I don't know. Have we had a return to that? Because like I, I, I really appreciated how much he was letting the camera just linger on things like uh, there were shots uh, through the in the woods where there was like shots through the treetops that reminded me of like after Yang, we had seen moments like that in that Mm -hmm. film. Um, And then there's like uh, the intro with like how much we were just getting shots of this rain just pouring down and how much the sound of that rain like provided the atmosphere and sort of soundtrack to that moment. Um, And all of that felt modern to me in a way that I gravitated towards. Um, So I didn't think any of that felt dated at all. Um, Some of the, there was an interesting choice that the uh, was made by the performer, um, and I don't know the actor's name. It might be the one that you were saying he he worked with a lot. Uh, the guy who plays uh, who plays the bandit, uh, the bandit. Yeah, Toshiro Mufune. Yeah, he would repeatedly do this like mad laugh. Yeah, and he did it a lot, <laughs> and it was really weird and off putting, and like. Um, it even also kind of comes back later with um, the wife kind of does a similar mad laugh. And um, every time it happened, I, I I couldn't tell if it was really good or I was not believing it. I don't know what it is. Like I was somewhere on the fence about it. And, and I don't know if there's like a cultural thing going on here or what, but um, it almost seemed over the top to me, like, like a caricature rather than a real person. But then I don't know, maybe it's just a cultural thing. And like, I, I don't know. So I think there's multiple things. I think part of it is a lot of um, actors were coming from stage plays. That's definitely a part of it. And there's there's a... Because it's really big. It's really over the top. Yeah, there's a need to be bigger in your performance on a stage in order for the audience to, to get all of the audience to see that. But I think it's more so a cultural thing like you're talking about. Because I, I was reading Roger Ebert's sort of review of Rashomon. I think he wrote it in like the early 2000s or late 90s. And he was talking about how this was one of the first Japanese films he ever saw. And he was really struck by the fact that there, he, he was wondering after seeing this film for the first time, did all Japanese actors act like this, like really, really large and really loud and, and like attention grabbing in ways, or was this a choice by the direction? And he's, as time has gone on, he realized it was a Kurosawa thing more than, okay. cause you look at a filmmaker like Ozu who has a lot more of like, the contemporary uh, conversational, like what you would expect from a from a normal conversation and from a from a, a you know scenario, and I think he's he's ramping up a lot of that. Kurosawa is ramping up a lot of emotion in this film. So some of it's a Kurosawa's Akira Kurosawa's uh, style coming direction through. and style in this film, yeah, because yeah. he okay. he leaves reality. I think for a lot of his films, he wants mm. to elevate into the surreal and maybe you know supernatural in some ways and. And well, into sure. that sphere. The medium. So I, I think that's probably what you're picking up on there. I think yeah. that, I think it's interesting because I would point it to it as a, as a moment of Toshiro Mufune doing a great job because of how large it is. Like I said, sometimes it worked really well for me and yeah. then other times I was like, it almost was too much. So I don't know. I was on the fence about it. I, I, I would assume, and this is me speaking for the man, but I would assume Kurosawa wants his audience to think that's a weird moment and laugh at it a little bit. Right. You know? Okay. So that maybe there's a little bit of that going on as well. Right. Yeah, because it's supposed to almost be humorous to us as viewers. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be. I think a lot of these films, like art house films in general, people people get stuck on them being really ser- serious, and maybe the films taking themselves really seriously, mm. and forget like the, that 
there's even though it can be the, one of the greatest films ever made and still make you laugh i think that there's this weird disconnect that i've noticed personally mm. uh, i'm not saying that that's what was going on here necessarily i just i i think people take things so seriously that they're like everything's deadly serious in this film when right. art is not that way it's all the it's all the spectrum of emotions and everything like that so uh, moving on, his approach to sound and his approach to the f- the filmmaking techniques that they employ, like he, he had another quote about the idea of kind of making sections like a silent picture. He said, I, I like silent pictures and I always have. I wanted to restore some of this beauty. I thought of it. I remember in this way, one of the techniques of modern art is simplification and that I must therefore simplify this film. And that is something that when I sit down and think about this film now, all the techniques that are employed some are experimental, if you, but if you strip away the camera techniques and some of the like revolutionary stuff he was doing, the story and some of the some of what happens in the film is fairly simple. Just but just allowing the performances to carry yeah. carry the film through. Because you know it, what I, you know what movie I kept thinking of that we have covered. That? I don't know if you can guess. So something that you said was it a uh, Kubrick film? No, that's a good guess. So okay. what I kept thinking of was the tragedy of Macbeth. That we okay, covered yeah. recently because aspect ratio, black and white. Totally. And then it was a lot of scenes where it was like a character looking at the camera. I felt like there was a lot of these extreme close ups. And um, I was thinking about how, like, you know, if you don't know any better, you could have assumed these movies were made around the same time. In some I think that's ways, what the right? Coens are going for, right? Yeah. Or I think it was Joel Cohen. I can't remember the, which of the two. I think it might have been Joel, but I'm not okay. sure. So he was trying to obviously call back to something like that the films that he grew he grew up on and we talked about that in that episode some of the films that he grew up on well and then think about the the medium later right and like the it, it reminded me a little bit of the contortion the that we saw with the witch uh in in that movie and the, and i don't know there was just certain things uh characters in foreground and background during these confessions that was giving me some of those memories yeah his blocking his blocking and his motion in the scenes the way that he uses motion and then the way that he who will frame a character using the back of another character or just many i don't know one shot that i just have to talk about before i forget because i has to be on recording the shot where the three the the samurai the wife and the bandit are all in a triangle and they're looking at one another and like we see it from behind someone's framed off to the over their shoulder and then they'll turn to look and then we follow that person's gaze and the way that we f- we go through each of the three perspectives and then come back i i just just like every western ever has has referenced that every like tons of action movies any sort of standoff any like, it just it was really cool and and i hadn't noticed that shot until this viewing and i was just oh, like wow. couldn't believe how how awesome it was so We'll talk more about those when we get to those scenes themselves. But in simplifying, I, I noticed, too, there's three settings in this film. There's the gate. There's the middle of the woods, which can be anywhere in the woods, right? We just never know where we're at in the woods. And where they're having their confessions and the like, confession, the, the courtyard. Yeah. Yeah. The courtyard kind of. Place. I wasn't sure where that was. Like, I had no real idea. Yeah. yeah it feels like it's almost like out of space or something yeah you know, they're like, like outside too like the sun's beating down on them and they're just having to white like walls they're just having them. to sit there in the sun like i kept thinking like it must be really hot why are they being questioned like this i don't know like i could i had a lot of questions but we don't get any answers yeah i want to talk about the the filming and the cinematography uh kazuo miyagawa was the uh cinematographer and he's japan's most renowned cinematographer uh he came to film 
after studying traditional Japanese ink painting, training that influenced his professed desire to, quote, use the camera to paint on film to bring rhythm and music to camera work and to continue writing poetry in the tone, end quote. That artistry is on display in some of the towering masterworks of Japan's cinematic golden age. For Akira Kurosawa's international breakthrough, Rashomon, Miyagawa shot directly into the sun to achieve a glinting, abstracted dynamism. And um, I read and I've seen people talk about in the past, supposedly Miyagawa and Kurosawa filming into the sun is the first time it was ever done. Really? um, On film, as far as like a a film being released. And this... I mean, I imagine that must be difficult because how... I mean, let's talk about a light that's going to overwhelm things, the sun Incredibly (laughs) over... Yeah, it's going to overexpose everything. So, and like to use the overexposure that you're getting from the sun and then have the branches and leaves and that dappling effect go across that that often. that was something i totally noticed is how often we had shadows falling on our characters like whether it's leaves or branches or like different moments throughout the movie there's a lot of shadows that we're telling us about setting because we're getting like a close-up of the character yet we're we're getting setting coming in from all that other stuff it was really cool yeah so uh also notable to his work is the impressionistic, which I think we're getting with a lot of that like dappling effect. and Well, and also uh, just the that... concept of the movie being so um, the truth is it depends on the eye of the viewer, right? And yeah. the, the eye of the teller. Yeah, or the camera specifically, right? Like our view as the audience. As well, well, the camera, it, and we've talked a lot about how tends to be in, in movies, like the camera tends to kind of tell the truth, right? Like you tend to believe what you're seeing, but this is an example where you you can't. Even what you're seeing with the camera could be a lie. Yeah, it's the truth to the perspective that we're in. Tying the camera to the perspective of a character who is unreliable, which we've seen other other people do, but he's doing it a lot here. Factually, like they're contradicting each other, though. So there has something has to be a lie here. You know it, like you know somebody's lying. You know, like everybody's lying basically by the end of this. None of it can be completely true, in my opinion. Yeah. So also notable in uh, Miyagawa's work, uh, fast-paced camera, which moves disorientingly through the sun-dappled woods here, lending the film an ominous, almost abstract beauty, which we were just talking about. Miyagawa contributed numerous ideas, technical skill, and expertise and support for what would be an experimental and an influential approach to cinematography. Another technique that they employed that became famous was they wanted to use natural light, but the natural light was too weak. So they solved the problem by using a mirror to reflect the natural light. Now, normally they had reflectors that would be used, but a mirror almost amplifies the sunlight in in, in its reflection. And uh, the result is if you look at some of the shots, it's really strong sunlight. Uh, that can travel through the branches and hit the hit the actors, and that's some of what mm. you're seeing. With it makes those shadows probably really stand out, really prominent. Yeah, um, and then another technique they used was the rain in the the gate scenes. They actually tinted it black when before they started spraying it, so that you, it would yeah. come up more in the black and white film. Wow, they had to use so much water. I was just thinking about yeah. how I was like, I know this can't be real rain. And it's really coming down. Yeah, I saw pictures and they were basically had people standing off to the side using like fire hoses shoot shot up into the air. <laughs> yeah, wild wow. stuff. There was so yeah. much rain coming down. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I want to talk more about the symbolism and the music and some of the editing techniques. But we, let's move into the plot itself. And I'll talk about the, the influence and the critical response. But a woodcutter and a priest are sitting beneath the Rashomon city gate to stay dry in a downpour when a commoner joins them and they begin recounting a very disturbing story about an assault and murder that took place. Neither the woodcutter nor the priest understand 
how everyone involved could have given radically different accounts of the same event, with all three people involved indicating that they and they alone committed the murder. The woodcutter claims he found the body of a murdered samurai while looking for wood in the forest three days earlier. He first found a woman's hat, then a samurai cap, cut rope, and an amulet. Finally, he discovered the samurai's body, upon which he fled to notify the authorities. The priest claims he saw the samurai traveling with his wife the same day the murder happened. Both men were summoned to testify in court, where a fellow witness presented a captured bandit who claimed to have followed the couple after coveting the woman when he glimpsed the pair traveling through the forest. So now we get the bandit's story. Tojimaru the bandit and a notorious outlaw claims that he tricked the samurai to step off the mountain trail with him to look at a cache of ancient swords that he had discovered. In a grove, he tied the samurai to a tree, then brought the samurai's wife there with the intention of assaulting her. She initially tried to defend herself with a dagger, but was overpowered and then seduced by the bandit. The wife, ashamed, begged Tojimaru to duel her husband to the death to save her from the guilt and shame of having two men know her dishonor. She promised to go with the man who won their battle. Tajimaru honorably set the samurai free and dueled with him. They fought skillfully and fiercely, with Tajimaru praising the samurai's swordsmanship. In the end, Tajimaru killed the samurai before realizing the wife had fled. At the end of his testimony, he is asked about the expensive dagger used by the samurai's wife to defend herself. Tajimaru claims he forgot about it in the confusion after the fight and laments leaving it behind as the dagger's pearl inlay made it very valuable. The commoner claims that men often lie, even to themselves because they are weak. Yeah, okay, so that's just the first take on what happened. Um, and we will see other takes that that go against that. But it sets up a couple of the like primary events that do sort of overlap. There's a few things that that are pretty consistent throughout. Like we get the sense that like this guy definitely attacked this couple, definitely tied the husband up. Definitely sexually assaulted the wife. That seems to be consistent in all of it. Um, and just got to say, fucked up, right? Like, he's a terrible dude. He seems completely out of his mind. When he tells his story, I thought it was notable that he starts off by talking about how he didn't kill the guy. But then he immediately says, if, I hadn't, if it hadn't been for that breeze, I wouldn't have killed him. And so it seems like he contradicts himself right off the jump, right before he launches into his story, because then he kind of is saying he did kill him, um, which is then what plays out. Um, and he blames the breeze. So he kind of blames like cosmic stuff like, oh, the breeze is what blew her veil open, which is what made me decide I needed to attack her. Um, and then the way he describes her is sort of like giving in and being seduced by him all of a sudden. All of this was giving me strong vibes from like true crime stuff I'd listen to where you'll hear about the accounts of the serial killers themselves or the, uh, you know, whoever the criminal is being described. When they describe their own crimes, they always cast themselves as these like tragic figures who are, you know, being tempted by these women or by, you know, whoever the, the, victim is at the time and they always try and like put it on the victim like something they did caused this and then also of course they're into it and they you know at a certain point they you know it was totally consensual you always hear that like every 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 time they claim it was consensual and that was like very true to life to me when i heard this guy's version of the story um i was like yeah that is probably the kind of shit that people like this would say 
um, you know, like a psychopath would, would, would try and say that like, oh yeah, she, and, and, you know, at a certain point she was totally into it. So it wasn't a rape right. kind of thing. And, well, he's almost, he's casting himself as like a misunderstood honorable, like yeah. anti-hero or something. And that's just not the case. Obviously. Yeah. Like he definitely like knows he's a villain and he's like, you're going to, you're going to hang me for this anyway. But then like when he's telling the story, he definitely kind of aggrandizes everything he did. He said that they battled, their duel was so magnificent. And yeah, that was a big one. Uh, 23 strokes. No man has ever met my sword 23 times before. They've only, everyone's ever been above 20. Um, yeah, that, that was interesting. And of course, he, he knew that he did something wrong, but he also convinced himself that she, like you said, was into it and sort of at some point was consenting. Well, and then we get all kinds of fucked up stuff around this honor killing stuff that happens where it's like, her shame and she had you know her husband had seen her with him and then therefore she couldn't live or he couldn't live somebody couldn't survive somebody had to die and then like he's kind of like oh i just had to like i had to do this thing because that's what she wanted um and that's all super fucked up and unfortunately has some real world truth to it as far as like um i remember i was listening to a podcast recently it was talking about a case where um it was in i believe in italy and um, and and there's this was a very strong attitude where women, if they were unwed and got assaulted, like sexually assaulted by a man, um, they would be dishonored in the, the the eyes of like the entire society, unless there was like this loophole. If they then marry the guy who raped them, it would be okay and like would be viewed as um, not dishonorable, and it would no longer be a crime. Because you like if they married their attacker, it would like absolve them of the crime. So there was this really fucked up social pressure if you got assaulted to marry the person who did it. And I was getting that kind of vibe from the way this was being described. Like she's like, I gotta marry one of you now or something. Like after this happened, right? Like she, yeah, I have to go with one of you. Um, it was all super gross. Um, but uh, that's I guess you know I assume that was like of the time or of the time that's being portrayed. Um, that was still the attitude um, in this, you know, kind of place, I guess, and this society. Yeah. Um, fucked up. I mean, the era that the era that he's portraying, yeah, I think that that was, unfortunately. A lot of victim blaming going up. on back in the day, right? Like, right. so much patriarchy was like, if you get raped, it's like your fault, and now you have to die because I've been dishonored. It's, like, it's so bizarre. It also is like, highly sexist society that like there there is society blames you right society backs it up they're, they're like uh all the everyone is seeing the perspective of the woman as like she's weak she's this she's that she like I, there's a moment even in this perspective that i can bring up where he talks about like she was so she was so like passionate or something like that she was so powerful but and yet she's still just a weak woman and she doesn't understand her emotions or something like that something along those lines yeah. to where that was the that was the like pervading view of like a woman at the time which you know obviously is extremely fucked up so i keep coming back to one thing though that i want to talk about in all versions the husband fucking sucks fuck the hu like i yeah. i hate the husband he's terrible yeah. in every version of the story his attitude is the worst I, I don't know. I detest him. It changes throughout, but he's always bad. So uh, I'm on team. The husband fucking sucks in, in this. Uh, like, of course, the bandit sucks, but the husband also fucking sucks. I'm on team woodcutter. I'm on <laughs> <laughs> the guy who like kind of did like almost nothing wrong. But yeah, although although maybe he stole something or concealed something. 
it's it's good that you bring that up though because that'll be that'll be something fun to note at the end because there's obviously subtext and some symbolism going on in this film and uh i'll just start talking about it now some some of the symbolism that people have analyzed over the years i don't want to take credit for this but i've seen it talked about before and, and found it again on this um on this viewing with with the research so well set maybe maybe propose a symbol to me and, and i'll i can try and see if i can theorize what it might mean Sure. I mean, this is more blatant, but but the first one I was going to bring up is there's allegory to World War II okay. going on here. Interesting. Do you want to try to dig into that? In the story itself, there's an allegory to World War yeah. II? Um, well, I guess you have different major superpowers battling and uh, each country with its own event, like theory of the events and what transpired and... Um, you know, tells tells its own people a very different version of the story. So I could see that right. structurally being similar. Yeah, and it was this a nineteen fifty movie, so that makes sense directly after directly World War Two. Yeah. So II, and, yeah. and you got to think of like what Japan may have been dealing with. I, you know, they, yeah. there are people that have said like maybe they're ashamed of some of the things that they did during the war. War is ugly, obviously. There's a lot to deal with there. Yeah. But then they were also angry. There's definitely some horrors. Angry because of the way that that things ended for them and the way that they had to basically submit to a nation that they didn't respect. And and the, and the way that it happened was kind of like a cheat code, you could say, you know what I mean? Like it was like, it wasn't something that was seen as like, it was devastation. Atomic bombs, yeah. Yeah, atomic bombs. It's, it's devastation. And like, of course you would, you'd back down from that, the idea of that happening again. And, and so I'll, I'll just read into some of what people have said about this. So due to, it, due to its emphasis on the subjectivity of truth and uncertainty of factual accuracy, Rashomon has been read by some as an allegory of the defeat of the Japanese at the end of World War II. Uh, James F. Davidson's article, Memory of Defeat in Japan, a Reprisal of Rashomon, in the December 1954 issue of the Antioch Review, is an early analysis of World War II defeat elements. Another allegory interpretation of the film is mentioned briefly in the 1995 article, Japan, an Ambivalent Nation, and Ambivalent Cinema, by David M. Desser. Here, the film is seen as an allegory of the atomic bomb and Japanese defeat. It also briefly mentions James Goodwin's view on the influence of post-war events on the film. However, In the Grove, obviously, is a, a story that came out in 1922. So any of those allegories would have been added by Kurosawa. Right. And that's an interesting thing that can happen in adaptation. You can take something and change its meaning slightly or add a layer of allegory, add symbolism because you have the opportunity to do so that can change meaning a little bit. Um, and that's something that we, we do see happen sometimes in adaptation. So just because the story wasn't about that doesn't mean that the movie's not. Historian and critic David Conrad has noted that the use of rape as a plot point came at a time when American occupation authorities had recently stopped censoring Japanese media and belated accounts of rapes by occupation troops began to appear in Japanese newspapers. Uh, moreover, Kurosawa and other filmmakers had not been allowed to make Jitageki during the early part of the occupation. So setting a film in the distant past was a way to reassert domestic control over cinema. I was going to ask you about that. So this comes out during the Hayes Code stuff that was going on in America, right? Right. And yeah, but it wouldn't apply to this film. But then I'm like, does that make, did that make it so it was difficult to be shown in the States? Because I would I would imagine this is subject matter that went against the Hayes Code. <laughs> I think so. I think it had to do with the fact that it was an international film. And I think that they were sort of not being held to the same. I wonder how you, how did you even see this in like 1955? You know what I mean? How did you even watch this movie? 
was it shown in theaters? Was it like something you could get? You're saying in America specifically because it was shown worldwide. I assume it was shown in theaters, but I, I, you know, it was probably more so like art house theaters and things like that. And then it sort of built up a following as time went on. But like getting into the reception in Japan, most critics uh, didn't like the film, supposedly at the in the very beginning. When it received positive response in the West, Japanese critics were baffled. Some decided that it was only admired because it was, quote, exotic. Others thought it succeeded because it was more Western than most Japanese films. Once it had screened uh, in the Venice Festival, it drew an overwhelmingly positive response from the audience and that were praising the originality of the film and its techniques while making many question of the nature of truth. The film won both the Italian Critics Award and the Golden Lion, which I talked about, and it won, quote, the most outstanding foreign language film released in the United States during 1951 which would go on to be the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film, Foreign Language Film, uh, because it wasn't introduced until like 1956. And I think now it's international film. It's not called foreign film in the Academy. Okay, gotcha. While we're talking about The Bandit, I thought I'd just mention like there was some there were some interesting choices with him where he was like, and really multiple characters, just profusely sweating. Um, and it really definitely conveyed the heat of it, but then also like he was slapping at bugs constantly too. It, it added to a sense of this guy being kind of twitchy, um, maybe dirty. Like he's like, hasn't bathed in a long time. It seems like, um, covered in sweat. He's just like sleeping in the middle of the woods. Like he almost doesn't seem like a person as much as just this, this like force of nature of chaos. And I can see that going into a lot of the symbolic readings of it and stuff like it lends itself to that in a way is he almost seems more like an idea than even a person symbolism of of world war ii is interesting because it's like you have these you have these opposing sides they're all trying to have history remember them differently and in a better light after something horrific happens that they did something they're probably not proud of the way that that kind of shapes kurosawa looking at this short story thinking about like human nature and that's what i think this this film gets into a lot is human nature in a war human nature in daily life and human nature just how we are like for whatever reason historically built to to be in conflict war has pervaded history as far back as you go and then you get this idea going forward you mentioned the woodcutter and like there's this baby at the end um and the idea of everything in the film is talking about how bleak it is. They're at the gate at the beginning, right? And they're talking about, we've been ravaged by war and fire and these rains never stop and all of these the things. The priest is having a, a crisis of faith. He doesn't know if he believes in humanity anymore. And you can understand having gone through everything that everybody went through during World War II, not being able to grapple with that and, and kind of questioning. Well, and they're at a place that's been destroyed. Like it's, it, it seems like it's seen war, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, and, and just like trying to find any glimmer of hope in humanity when you don't believe in humanity anymore after a war like World War II. So I, I just found myself thinking a lot about that during this viewing. And then, you know, as we get closer to the end and we, and there's like the kind of epilogue end cap where we were at the, we're back and the woodcutters telling his version of events. And then we get that the moment where with the baby, we'll talk more about it. So moving forward, we get into the wife's story. The wife's testimony tells a different story. She claims that Tajomaru 
left immediately after raping her. Once he is gone, she cut her husband free from his bonds and begged her husband for forgiveness, but he simply stared at her coldly, blaming her for the assault. She begs her husband to kill her so that she would be at peace with her honor restored, but he continued to stare at her with loathing. His content distressed her so greatly she fainted while standing over her husband with the dagger in her hands. She awoke to find her husband dead, the dagger in his chest. In shock, she wandered through the forest until she came upon a pond. She attempted to drown herself but failed. The commoner claims that women often use their tears to hide lies. And then moving into the samurai story. Lastly, the court hears the story from the perspective of the samurai as told through a medium. The samurai claims that after the rape, Tajamaru asks the wife to live with him. To the samurai's great shame, his wife accepts the proposal, but asks Tajamaru to kill her husband. Disgusted at the wife's request, Tajamaru grabbed her and gave the samurai the choice, let her go or kill her. The samurai notes that this gesture almost allowed him to forgive Tajamaru. The wife broke free and fled, with Tajamaru giving chase. Tajamaru failed to capture her, gave up, and returned to set the samurai free. Tajamaru apologized and then departed. Humiliated, the samurai killed himself with his wife's dagger. Later, he felt someone remove the dagger from his chest, but could not tell who. The commoner notes that men often lie to protect their honor. All right, so back to back, I got to react to these ones. So it's interesting because like I read the wife's perspective in the short story. Much of this stuff is verbatim from the short story, right? We're seeing it on screen, but this is the same stuff that happens. And same, like a lot of the exact things that happen in the movie are exactly what happens in the in the book and the short story. The moment where she's like trying to escape his gaze is really interesting, as we're it's being shot from behind his back, and the camera keeps following her even as she looks like she's like trying to get out of the way of it. She's like trapped, right? Yeah, it really frame. felt like she was trapped in that gaze, and it really like he did a good job of looking disgusted. Um, totally, I'm like getting pissed off at the husband. That whole sequence where she is like reacting to his look and she's slowly falling into it. That that performance is amazing too. She she, she in her version of the story, she like passes out and wakes up and he's dead <laughs> with a dagger in his chest. I hope she just stabbed his ass and, and blacked out. That's my like personal hope. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, from this perspective, what I assume happened was she killed him. Yeah, and it's trying to save face by saying that she passed out and everything. Or maybe like she that. really it, just blacked out during it. But like, cause sometimes that happens, but like, yeah. it's possible. But I, I felt like it was her, Saving. that was her moment of kind of making, making herself look better. Yeah. And then, but then we get the husband's point of view and I'm like, all right, husband, it's going to take a lot for you to like win me back over because you seem like a real shithead and all of these other versions I've, I've read now. Um, and then he gives his version of the tale and it's not any better. And, and he doesn't really cast him as much better than anything else. Um, if anything, it tries to redeem the bandit in his eyes a little bit. Yeah, which was so Because weird. all this honorable bandit was like giving me the option and it almost made me forgive him. It's very clear that this culture and specifically this person thinking about this culture cared about his honor more than he cared about his wife or a woman in general. Well, and he also like in his version, his wife is getting ready to go with the the rapist. And like leave with him, and and I think it's interesting that like in her version was the only one where that wasn't the case, right? Like he had already left, so I feel like that's most likely what happened here. And this is like a manifestation of his weird attitude about the rape and how like he had like stolen her honor, and he was perceiving that as her like liking it and liking the guy, liking the bandit, and so he manifests it with this lie about her wanting to go with him and like them almost working together. There's like certain facets of each story that corroborate each other yeah. and then co like counteract each other. Yeah. Like, and of course it's not that simple, but 
Right. She's also seduced in his version of events. So two versions of events are saying that she, it seems like she was probably going to go with this bandit. But not her version. Not her version. Because I think it would paint her in a worse light. So it's interesting. Like there are more, more. Or is it just the two, two dudes like having fucked up attitudes about the whole thing? Like one of them's trying to justify his own action. And the other one is trying to justify blaming his wife for what happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, too, because we're taking the word of a medium for all of this as well. All, on top of that, it's being delivered through a medium. Yeah. yeah. Which the medium's performance is also incredibly yeah. cool. And the voice that they use. the it, way like, that overlays it's it or something, it seemed like, right? Yeah. Very over the top, very extreme. She's like doing like contortionist stuff as she's telling the story. Super interesting. I always um, found this part to be really engaging, like even for my first viewing. Because like, I, I, you know, typically like sort of genre stuff like that right like i like the idea of there being like a possible you know somebody channeling somebody i'm like all right cool let's have this in this story that i wouldn't have have you know assumed this would be in and then i took it when he says that he killed himself to me that seems like somebody's trying to save face over the fact that his fucking wife killed him for being a dick that's what i think actually happened and then he's like no 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 it was i totally sacrificed myself out of you know honor uh, that's to me what seems most likely, but you know, who knows? Yeah. The whole point is, I also love the version of events that we're getting up to with the woodcutter. Yeah. Let's get into the final one. Yeah. Now, uh, no notable. This is not in the short story. So what you're, what we're about to get this final woodcutters point of view where he actually All of reveals the rest of the that he's film. seen some stuff yeah. and the rest of the film is not there. What we end on is actually, let's talk a little bit before we get to it about what we end on in the short story, because we end on, a note that he even says where like somebody came later to pull the dagger out of him. And then like, I think the the story ends with darkness. He kind of fades into darkness. Yeah. yeah. Who to you pulls the dagger out? The woodcutter. It's the woodcutter. Okay. You so in your, and so in his memory, the woodcutters pulling it out. The woodcutter doesn't exist in the short story though. So I'm just kind of saying, well, kind of there is, there is the, there is the guy. Yeah. I mean, he's at the very start. Um, and he says that he didn't see a, a sword at all or a dagger at all. I think, I think that is the thing okay. he says. So, so maybe that is, so maybe the be... implication is that he stole it. That was my thought is that maybe that's him returning here, but then I could also see this being some sort of metaphor, right? Like something about death or something, right? Like coming in and ushering him into the underworld. But why does it have to do with the, with the specifically with the dagger and pulling it out? I don't know. Is the act of pulling the dagger out what actually kills him? Well, the fact that it's his wife's dagger in the first place, if you just hear, oh, someone was killed by their wife's dagger, you're going to think, okay, so the wife probably did it. And so is this also giving us some sort of clue towards like, did this person do it? I think we've solved it. I I didn't think we were going to solve it when we were talking about it, but I think we, I think we've solved it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I, but I like your metaphor with death. Like I like the idea of like the shadow of death coming and pulling the sword, pulling the dagger and, and ushering him on. Uh, into the darkness and like I, I don't know I, there's something cool about that as well yeah why wouldn't he recognize who it was it was just a shadowy figure I don't know so this moves us into the final bit in the film as well the woodcutter story back at Rashomon after the trial the verdict is never revealed the woodcutter claims that all three stories are falsehoods and notes that the samurai was killed by a sword not a dagger catching this admission the commoner gets the woodcutter to admit that he witnessed the assault and murder but declined the opportunity to testify because he did not want to get involved According to the woodcutter, after the rape, Tajamaru begged the samurai's wife to marry him. Instead, she freed her husband, hoping that he would kill Tajamaru. However, the samurai refused to fight, explaining to Tajamaru that he would not risk his life for a spoiled woman. 
With the samurai no longer caring for his wife, Tajimaru rescinds his promises to marry her and prepares to leave. The wife criticizes both men, calling them dishonorable cowards. Tajimaru, because he would not keep his word to kill the samurai to have her. The samurai, because he would not kill Tajimaru to avenge his own honor, saying a real man would fight Tajimaru and then demand she kill herself. The two men unwillingly fight, both clearly terrified in a pitiful duel, nothing like what Tajimaru describes in his testimony. Even the wife seems to regret having provoked the battle. The samurai is finally killed while pitifully begging for his life, and Tajimaru is disgusted at killing him. Ultimately, Tajimaru won through a stroke of luck. He attempts to take the wife with him, but she rejects his advances and flees. Tajimaru takes the samurai's sword and limps away. And then we get the epilogue. At Rashomon Gate, the woodcutter, the priest, and the commoner are interrupted by the sound of a crying baby. They find a baby abandoned in a basket with a kimono and protective amulet. The commoner steals the kimono and amulet. The woodcutter reproaches the commoner for stealing from an orphan child and attempts to stop him. The commoner overpowers the woodcutter and chastises him as a hypocrite. The commoner correctly deduces that the true reason the woodcutter declined to testify is because he's the one who stole the valuable dagger. The commoner leaves Rashomon Gate, explaining that all men are motivated only by self-interest. Meanwhile, the priest has been attempting to soothe the baby. After the commoner departs, the woodcutter attempts to take the baby. The priest violently recoils his experiences at the trial and at Rashomon Gate have destroyed the priest's faith in humanity. The woodcutter explains that he intends to raise the child. He already has six of his own. This revelation recasts the woodcutter's story and motivations, restoring the priest's faith in humanity as the woodcutter prepares to leave with the child and the rain stop and the clouds part, revealing the sun. So that's all added. That's all not in the short story and does recontextualize everything that happens. But let's back up to the woodcutter's version of events, because I think that's an interesting place to look at, because at this point, I'm fully on wife's side. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's like the worst victim here. So it totally kind of makes sense. This story also doesn't cast her in a great light. This is the one where she's doing the maniacal laugh herself. Um, it's very similar to what we'd seen the bandit do. Um, is she's sort of scolding both men and, and driving them to fight each other. Um, and then the two men fight each other. And I did think it was very funny how different the duel plays out than what we saw earlier. As they're just like, they, they take one swing at each other and then both run. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> I remember in a film class that I took when we watched this film and we were analyzing it after the fact, this was a breaking point for one of the students. And they basically, this fight was, they I guess they didn't uh, have the context or didn't pick up on like how this was supposed to be a cowardly duel and how this fight plays out. It's it, it's like a longer fight and they're kind of flailing around at each flailing, other. It's pitiful. Yeah. And I can understand like choreography wise, like for a modern viewer, kind of seeing them like purposely miss each other and stuff. But if you're, I think at this point you're embedded in the story enough. Um, but it always sticks with me that like that was, I, I think of that as like, Having, there's a certain like cinematic literacy that I think like as you go along with the story, you're willing to suspend certain disbeliefs and like it's going to be different for each person. But this fight is is ridiculous. And this is another point where I'm getting at like this. This film's not taking itself extremely seriously as everyone else maybe does. It's it's supposed to be funny. Yeah, it's supposed to be pitiful like the, the this talked about this summary. It's it's purposely done to seem pathetic. Yeah. And it shows both men. Like this is talking about both men totally aggrandizing their own prowess and stuff. And this and gets you into like thinking about war and war stories and the way that like things actually happen a lot sloppier and a lot more cowardly than people would have you believe and, and the way that people change their perspectives and uh, according to how the real events were. And so I do like that. 
Yeah, like that that lines up with that World War II analogy pretty well. I like that. The one thing I keep coming back to is how the wife really isn't shown in a very good light here. And then it's interesting that he contends that the the husband was killed by a sword, not the dagger. But is he just trying again to get like right he's trying to write the dagger out of the story to show that he stole it. So does that mean if that's the case, then did this duel even occur at all? I it's hard to know, right? Because it, it or if it occurred, did the not did the, did the husband not die at the end? Did the wife end up killing him instead? It depends and, on which perspective you take. Because yeah, the is wife he covering it, it, for the wife for some reason, maybe just to, to again not implement the dagger. Because he does if, if he has the murder weapon, then that makes it an even more sought after item. I think that's what it comes down to partially. Yeah. However you fall on that, do you think the wife did it or do you think there was a duel? Because one way or another, the truth isn't coming out here, it seems. Yeah. It's interesting because the duel only occurs in two versions, the the bandits version and this final woodcutters version. And the bandits version, it's of this grand duel. Yeah. And my favorite part about all of this is that we have to, as the audience, also think about the fact that where this takes place in, in space and time the woodcutter's already heard the other three versions of the events. Yeah. So he's giving you this fourth version and he's able to do whatever he wants with the facts at this point. Totally. Yeah. And then um, it's so weird, right? Like the attitudes that go on the, in all versions by the husband continue to just be like, fuck that guy. Um, <laughs> and then, but yeah, she seems out of her mind at the end here. And like, she's driving them to like, she's using... She's like using society's pressures to force them to fight. She's like, society demands you fight each other now. Um, but like, did she really do that? Or is that just the woodcutter? Could be just the woodcutter. But either way, I, I, I do think, you know, you talked about it earlier, but it is interesting to think that this is about a murder and they don't care about the fact that she was raped because she was raped in yeah. all versions. Yes. And so like, that's, it's really telling of the culture at the time. And it's more about like who decided to kill who for honor's sake. It's really what comes down to at the end, which is, yeah, pretty fucked up, <laughs> to put it mildly. All right, let's talk about this epilogue a little bit. Yeah, so epilogue, uh, totally added, right? We get this baby that comes out of nowhere. I was very surprised when all of a sudden the baby starts crying. Yeah. Are we supposed to think that somebody ran up and dropped that off or was there the whole time? Or it's it's just a metaphorical baby, uh, if you want to like you know zoom out far enough. Um, because it, it, it is a moment where the woodcutter, who is like sitting with his shame as he's been called out, he runs over to the guy and he's like, oh, don't steal from that baby. And he's like, you're a hypocrite. You stole the dagger. And then he's just like, fuck, <laughs> like I got called out and I'm just going to sit here ashamed. But we do get context for why he may have stolen the dagger. What's that? Because he has six kids to feed. That's true. And this idea of what what is he going to do with the money from this dagger? Yeah, that's true. So that recontextualizes like he was a thief for what means for good means. Well, it's possibly? just motive. I mean, it doesn't mean he didn't didn't lie. It didn't you know? I guess just morally, is there a good is there a good reason to steal? You know, or is this a better reason to steal than what would have been bef- from than stealing from a baby? And we have this conversation with the priest, right, about how he's again lost his faith in truth and lost his faith in humanity, and um, he doesn't want to give the baby over to the woodcutter when the woodcutter tries to take the baby because of what he's heard about him now. The woodcutter's like, I have six kids already. What's the seventh one? You know, like, okay. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, sure, I guess. Um, hand me downs. Um, <laughs> and and so he wants to take the baby as like an act of goodness, though. And that's, I think, what's important here at the end, right? We have a character who has proven and been called out 
for participating in this in a way and like stealing and lying. And yet he is able to change the priest's perspective on humanity through this sort of selfless act. And it makes the story end on a very hopeful note that I didn't get from the short story makes the film end on a very hopeful note. And that note being that like one act of selflessness going forward can not erase what has happened, but like at least help you move on to a new chapter and can sort of sort of restore faith in humanity. Yeah. Well, that, that it, to me, it's not even like it doesn't counteract everything that happened, right. but there is still good out there. And it can come from the source though. It's the thing. It's not good. Or it doesn't arrive as some pure guy who wasn't involved in any of it. It's the guy himself who stole and lied is, is then making a decision to do the right thing. Which, you know, I think is a powerful, especially for the, the allegory that we've drawn and the idea of like what he may have been getting at here. I do think that like looking at it, it, it is like a nice, neat, heroic sort of ending moment with the sun shining and him walking away with the baby uh, rather than the bleak sort of uh, more bleak version of the story. Yeah, maybe. the commoner has a very bleak take on it all right before he runs off into the rain. He's just like, yeah, men lie. Hey, you know, he's very cynical. He's like, everybody's just out for themselves. Same thing with this baby. But he's kind of, I don't know, man, like that, that's that's my, one of my favorite parts about this film is that everybody is kind of right and wrong at the same time. So like there is a problem with self-interest in in, in people and, and they we will bend stories to our will to make us seem better. But there is still a decision to be made to do the right thing when, you know, when given the opportunity. It can happen. It's not guaranteed. But I think that the, the, knowing that there's the option there and like that's sort of the messaging that I take away from it. Yeah, is it's like, like a, where, where do you choose to end the story? I think it's important here for the message that Kurosawa is trying to put put out there that he ends it here. Right. You could have another filmmaker who decides to then follow the woodcutter home. He decides, you know what, this baby is going to be too much of a hassle. And he decides to leave him somewhere else on the way or something. And then all of a sudden we're back to the cynicism of man and everybody's a liar and self-interested. So. Yeah, it's all it's like that. that's the craft. Right. And that's what Kurosawa was trying to say. Um, I think it does have some truth to it, obviously, or it wouldn't resonate. And I think it's an important time. It's an important time in history for him to be telling this kind of story, which is probably one of the appeals of this movie. Yeah. Both exist in humanity, right? Like sure. you can't you can't get rid of either of them in our society and in our world. So it's like, what do you focus on? Knowing what to spot. I don't know, prevent, hopefully like morality tales and things like this can prevent us from from repeating history. But I think it's good. To, it's it's very human in the way that like it's it's messy. Both things are there. I wonder if anybody has like come up with a reading of this movie that says that basically everything the medium says is a complete lie. Not just a lie that the like spirit is lying, but that like everything the medium says is like a lie perpetrated by the medium. <laughs> I don't know that there's an accurate reading of the story that goes that route, but it'd be funny because then all of a sudden it throws a lot into question because everything we get from the the husband's point of view might just be complete fabrication. Uh, right. I don't know. I think in the book and in the film, the or maybe it is just the book. I can't remember whether whatever way it goes, the wife. Um, sort of her her story like cuts off because she starts crying or whatever it is um, and the way that that like that cutoff is important too because like she didn't finish saying like did she kill him did she not like there's so much ambiguity in the story so many moments where you can choose to believe or she not wakes believe. up and he's dead is what she says at one point it's like yeah like does she think that she's the one who did it or does she think that like he returned and did it she tries to kill herself too Oh, yeah, she, she said she tried herself. to kill herself and failed, but, like, I don't know if I believe that. 
again, because I'm on team wife killed the guy for being a dick about what happened. Yeah, um, which isn't a big deal. She should have killed him. <laughs> I do think that's funny to think about from a modern perspective, too, is that like if she was raped and she killed her husband for whatever reason. Well, because he blamed her for it at the end. This is like a revenge story in another in another more modern <laughs> film. It's like yeah. that's like we're on her side, even though she kills somebody. And then she lied and it's like, oh, and I tried to kill myself, but it didn't work. And I'm like, did you, though? <laughs> yeah. I think it's getting into the point where we need to talk about our, our vote here. I have a few other things, you know, I, I recommend everybody go read as much as you can on this. Like I said, highly influential uh, directors such as Federico Fellini, Satyajit Ray, Ingmar Bergman, John Huston consider this one of their favorite films. So like those are some of the pinnacles of, of filmmaking as well that have that have pointed to this film as one of their favorites. Um, and then just going to see the legacy of what Kurosawa does after this. Like this was this was the putting Japan, putting himself on the map on an international stage. Um, and then going on to see everything he does with movies like Seven Samurai and all the other influ- Hidden Fortress, like I said, influences Star Wars and just how far his his influence has gone. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have a chance to revisit this in the future. I hope so. So um, we'll have to save some for next time because we're, we're, we're definitely up against it here. Um, let's take our vote on which was better. Um, I'll I'll start off, I guess. Um, I'm going to give it to the movie. It adds so much um Addition, it adds a lot of additional layers to what was a gem of a story as far as like for its time, its form breaking. It is the seed that that led to this movie, um, but it almost felt like it hadn't reached its final form until Kuros- Kurosawa did his version of it and how he was able to add these layers of symbolism onto it and add the frame and get into the philosophical debate within the text itself. Um, and bring it to the film. I think that was a smart decision, and and to have characters raise the questions, um, right? Yeah, well, and works. you could see that as on the nose too, right? Like I think today you could see it as on the nose, but I think audiences needed that at the time. I think that that worked well for them, and it is subtle enough to where it's- I still enjoyed it today. Like I wasn't like there was a couple of parts I will admit towards the end where I felt like it was maybe just because I knew that the story had ended long ago where I was like, kind of like surprised that we're still going. I'm like, isn't this story going to end soon? And then we got a lot of the stuff with the baby. Um, I don't know. Like, but I think that that was the only thing. And I don't know that it was necessarily about this like debate, this morality debate. Like, I think that was all pretty compelling. Yeah. I, I'm going to pick the film as well. And I'm going to use my time because I've already talked about sort of why I'm going to use my time to talk about the, filmmaking techniques and the camera techniques and some of the other this the the craft of like the the um set design that that gate rashomon gate is like one of my favorite sets in ever like i think about it often it's like dilapidated it the way that the wood is all cracked and the the commoners like ripping pieces off of it and the way that the rain is coming down and it's so so much motion in the frame and that's just to get back to the camera techniques like there's like early handheld in this film like in the in the woods like tracking with people and some of like the the ways that this film sticks with me like the the oh my gosh like the first scene that we get there's there it's almost like mostly static shots so like uh, in that in that Rashomon gate area we're seeing these these characters that are very like still and contemplative and the shots are all locked off they're not moving in in many ways and then we transition into this journey that the that the woodcutter takes and his is like this long silent journey no no words he's sort of discovering things moving camera the whole time really famous sequence i think it's like two minutes long or so and just the way that like those techniques are used to sort of like transition from like 
the idea, the the overarching like background of this story is going to be these people and their somber thoughts about all these things that happen and into the kinetic nature and and which is revolutionary for the time of the filmmaking that goes goes forward through the rest of the film. So I, I've only seen it. I only seen it once. So I might be wrong about this, but it felt to me like the whenever we were at the gate there was no music it was all silence and rain was the background whenever we moved into the different accounts when we had the more dynamic movement of of cameras and all that stuff then all of a sudden we got soundtrack we had moments being set up by the music itself and like reacting Mm -hmm. to what was happening and it felt almost to me like he was saying that like these people made a movie out of it. Like it's like their memory is almost like itself a movie and and it is designed to affect you emotionally, make you feel certain ways for the protagonist, which is the different characters each time they retell it. Yeah. I mean ultimately they are storytellers, Ooh. right? They're telling one other thought. They're I, going through and telling a story. Yeah, one other thought before I forget it. The woodcutter doesn't appear in his memory. I thought was very interesting cuz he gives an account that he supposedly saw but we never see him in that memory. Where was he at that he watched this? We don't get a single shot of him like in the woods watching it or anything, which also puts the whole thing into debate whether or not all of that's a lie. Yeah, we do see him in the woods before, before. when he's stumbling upon everything, which is actually after the events of the the attack and everything. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I this movie sticks with me. I, I feel like I could watch it endlessly and continue to learn things forever. And it's definitely one of the movies that inspired me to to dig deeper and and like this was early days of of filmmaker James start, starting to kind <laughs> of understand what what a film could be. And uh, you know, I think many people would say the same thing. Great stuff. Um, If you enjoyed our coverage, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, Give us five stars. Let us know in a comment that you listened to our Rashomon coverage, and that, uh, that would be awesome to hear from you. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those adding to film. We're also on TikTok and all the other sites. Yeah. So look for us. We're on Discord. If you want to get in our Discord, send me a message and I'll send you a link and you can get in there. Um, Discord's where we sort of chat more casually with our listeners. Um, Facebook's where I post a lot of news. It's probably the place where I post the most news. Um, you know, we all we use all of them for different things. Um, and, uh, if you want to see our shorts, we have little clips that we've been putting out on TikTok and on, on YouTube. Um, make sure to either subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on TikTok for those. Um, you can get little video clips that we've been including. Um, so we, yeah, we use them all for, for different things. And if you want to support the podcast in another way, uh, financially, we mentioned the Patreon earlier, you can get great merch, but also we do monthly bonus episodes, usually adaptation adjacent, but, um, you know, we tend to experiment over there and, and kind of tackle anything that, that is uh, interesting to us. Most recently, we did Return to Oz, which was covering the magical world of Oz. We uh, <laughs> we got to go back there soon after going to the classic film. And, and you know, we were surprised because ne- neither of us had seen it. We were surprised at, at just how fun that was. So if you want to, if you want to hear that yeah, and bizarre and bizarre. Yeah. So if you want to hear that, uh, consider checking out Patreon. All right, here we are at the end of the episode. We'll announce, uh, next up, we are going to be tackling Pinocchio. We're going to start off with the novel itself, focus fully on the novel, and then we'll get into Guillermo del Toro's adaptation, which has been getting a lot of buzz, the stop motion version. Um, There should be a lot to talk about with both. I mean, this is obviously a story that's been adapted many times. So I wanted to make sure we gave the book its due. And then that'll be our focus next week. So hopefully you stick around for that. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, This is a film I've been holding off on watching as, as badly as I've wanted to. So I can't wait to get into it. And until next time, keep adapting.